Hi, welcome to Creeks to Peaks the Understory, the podcast that highlights West Virginians, both near and far, who are doing amazing work in their respective fields, many of whom you may not even know about. Our goal is to bring your attention to these individuals, their stories, and how they connect to the state. In forestry terms, the understory means everything underneath the canopy, and those are exactly the people we're trying to highlight. Maybe not household names, but stars in their own right. So join us as we talk to our guests about who they are and where they come from. This podcast is produced by Flag Spruce Initiative, a West Virginia-based nonprofit whose mission is to invest in and advocate for the education, environment, and economy of West Virginia, or what we refer to as our three E's. To donate and find out more about Creeks to Peaks the Understory and Flag Spruce Initiative, visit www.flagspruce.org or follow us on Instagram. This episode is part one of two with our guest Elaine McMillian Sheldon. Elaine is an Academy Award nominated and Emmy and Peabody Award winning filmmaker. She is best known for directing two Netflix original documentaries, Heroin and Recovery Boys. Elaine was recently named to Doc New York City's 40 Under 40 list for 2020. Having grown up in Southern West Virginia, Elaine now lives and teaches film in Knoxville, Tennessee. On this episode, we ask Elaine about why she's passionate about documentary filmmaking and also catch some cool stories from her time on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. Be sure to stay tuned for the release of part two of Elaine's interview in the coming weeks. Until then, as always, take a listen. Hi, Elaine, welcome. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. I guess the first place I want to start is, you know, really what piqued your interest in filmmaking? Well, I wouldn't say I was immediately interested in filmmaking. It kind of came as a product of the 2008-2009 recession because I actually wanted to just be a newspaper reporter, work for a magazine, but those jobs disappeared. And so I kind of just had to train myself to do other skills. And that started while I was at WVU. But I've always been interested in storytelling. I've always been a really curious person. And I grew up among a bunch of people who don't consider themselves professional storytellers, but have a strong storytelling bone in them. And so just sort of listening to my grandpa tell these wild tales and even my dad just sort of taught me how to tell a good story and grew up around a lot of characters, cast of characters, and sort of seeing the world as scenes within characters pretty early in life. So yeah, I think from like a lot of people that grow up in Appalachia, you sort of are experiencing storytelling at a pretty young age. And so I just happened to find a career in it. <laughs> I think that cast of characters is funny because I, I can certainly relate to that too, whether it's family or friends. I, I definitely think that ties back to a lot of West Virginia childhoods, I would say. Do you see that when you produce these films as well? Like, do you see the people who you're telling their stories? Like, do you identify them as characters too? Yeah, it's weird. Documentary has a bunch of different terms. So some people use the word subjects, which sounds very scientific and like a research facility. So I don't tend to use that. And then some people use participants. So in the case of some projects I do, they are participants. So they actually help make the media and then it is odd to refer to real people in their real situations as characters, but we are kind of all are playing a role in our lives in that way. So, yeah, I sort of see them as playing a specific role in a story when I'm filming them, knowing that they're much bigger than that role in real life. But the film can only 
it has a frame that can only show so much. And so, you know, you may know Jan Rader for more than just being the fire chief in Huntington, West Virginia, but in my film, she's a character who plays the role of the Huntington fire chief. And she's much more than that off camera, obviously. So yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but you know, documentary is just as much storytelling as fiction is. It's important to make move people to not just educate, but also to, you know, emotionally move them towards empathy or understanding that they didn't have prior to watching. And I guess, why do you choose to make documentaries? Your skills, I, I would imagine, are transferable to other types of filmmaking, too. Is there a specific reason why you've chosen to focus on documentaries? I'm just interested in real people and real situations. You know, the project I'm working on now has some fiction elements, and those are the moments where I feel like I really do call upon growing up as a kid, my own imagination. And so documentary doesn't really require that side of me, that imagination. It really requires me to be present with other people and sort of to be in their head more than anything. But I I love the documentary form because it gives other people the platform to share their story. And it was one of the reasons why I was so excited about moving image when I transferred from writing is I often felt that I never could write quite authentically the way people spoke and to have people's voices recorded and put out there in a raw form, emotionally hear the tenor of the voice, hear the change of pace, hear when they're nervous, hear when they're scared, hear when they're excited. It just felt so much more real and um, moving than I could write. And so that was sort of a hook for me. And so yeah, I'm just kind of a curious person interested in other people's lives and what makes them tick and what keeps them going. Do you think that documentaries tend to have a stronger impact on people? So so obviously you talk about telling stories and, and fictional stories. Like I think fictional stories can have a big impact on people's views of the world too, right? Oftentimes fiction is based in reality in some form. But when you're when you're actually putting someone's face that you can specifically relate to or or a hometown or a background that you can specifically see and, and say, hey, I know that person or, hey, I've been there. Do you think that that helps propel the messages that you're sharing forward or makes them land harder? Yeah, I think a lot of documentary filmmakers get into the form because they want to have impact. They're activists in some way. And I've always considered myself less of an activist for any particular issue or situation, but more of an activist for promoting human decency. And so that's always been my goal is really being an activist for showing people as the full humans we are, which is a messy situation. You know, none of the people in my films are all good, all bad. We all we all have flaws. And so I think that impact is tricky sometimes because I think if you want to have the clearest impact, you have to make the cleanest story. So documentaries like Blackfish that have a you know, that's going to be like free the well type documentary. It's got a very specific impact goal. They're going to leave out some information, right? Because they have a very specific goal of the impact they want. Whereas I'm interested in more of a less of a impact that can be checked off on a list of, okay, we're making change and more of a like promoting human dignity. So it's, it's, you know, I I would love to see when my films have impact, you know, when financial, when money comes into Huntington, West Virginia, or you know, when a needle exchange or syringe exchange is actually upheld and continued in a community because you see it working in this film or when people in recovery are seen as more than just their substance use disorder, like those are all amazing impacts. But I think that storytelling, first and foremost, is there to 
really take you on a journey and move you. And the impact that comes is one that is sort of person to person. Yeah. So I definitely want to have positive impact. I don't want to have negative impact, but I don't always know exactly what that impact will be. It's hard to measure sometimes. Well, that that was going to be my next question was when when you come up with an idea for a documentary, do you have at the outset what you want that impact to be? Or does the impact that you expect to have or want to have come together sometime after filming has started? I'm always learning through the documentary process. It's just one reason why I choose nonfiction. I don't choose topics that I know everything about. I choose things that I can learn over the course of, you know, it takes three years or more to make films like I make. And I have to have enough stamina and interest in a topic and not know everything about it so that I actually can dive in and want to spend three years learning. And so I'm often educated by the people on the ground about what the impact should be. So I may have an idea of what I think should change in the world, but ultimately I'm, I'm guided by those grassroots people that I'm following that show me, you know, what the real solutions are. Because I think so much of our problem, so many of our problems are too often addressed from a high level of someone sitting from far away that could be a documentary filmmaker who says, I know what to do to fix this situation without actually asking the grassroots people who are living it day to day. And so for me, the documentary process of figuring out impact comes a lot from just learning from seeing people struggle. You know, what does it look like when someone gets out of a six month rehab? I followed them for another 12 months, right? Followed them for 18 months in Recovery Boys. And so really get to learn about the criminal justice system firsthand. And you can see the impacts that things that are broken in society have on an individual. And that therefore informs, you know, whatever educational campaign you want to do with the film and just informs like the way you promote the film and the way that you speak to people about the film. So it, it's kind of always a work in progress. I never go in saying I'm going to change this or I'm going to do that. I don't see myself as a savior in that way. I really am guided by people who live it day to day because I'm the person that just kind of comes and goes, you know, at the end of the day, like these aren't my struggles. It's, it's painful to watch them, but I'm privileged in that I get to come and go. And so I kind of have to rely on the people living it to tell me what's best for them. You're not living those stories or those struggles day to day, but you have been surrounded by that in the past, I'm sure, growing up in Southern West Virginia, being in West Virginia for a significant part of your life. It's not as though you haven't been surrounded by it. So I guess my question was going to be, are these stories ones that you come up with? Are they sourced from your own ideas and things that you know about or have seen? Or are these ideas that you know people in, in the state or the region or even Hollywood producers are pitching to you to say, hey, this this is a great topic. We want you to come be a part of this. No, it, it's always me trying to convince people that West Virginia has a story worth telling. Not, no one's coming to me dying for me to tell the West Virginia stories. It's always the other way around. And I'm always trying to find the universality of the story so that it's not just told locally, right? There's a difference between local storytelling for local news and then local, localized storytelling for an international audience. And so thinking about how to communicate these small stories on a big scale so that they are universal is really important. So yeah, all the stories that most people, if they've seen my films like Heroin, Recovery Boys and Hollow, those all are from me because they're a desire to communicate something I'm not seeing in the world. You know, with the case of heroin, I wanted to see the resilience of, of who is actually on the ground trying to make change. Because at that point, 
we are looking around and most of the images of the opioid crisis in Huntington was people overdosing in grocery stores and needles in people's arms and children crying. And it was awful. I mean, it was just awful to watch. And, you know, it's a personal issue in the sense that I've lost quite a few friends from middle school and high school from overdoses and from they're in prison or they've lost their children or they're in a constant battle of addiction and going in and out of rehab. And so I was frustrated with the situation, the media representation, but also just wanted to better understand what my community was facing. So, and do that through a resiliency lens was uh, the sort of angle that Kern and I felt that we could really tap into that was being overlooked. And so I'm often telling stories that people know about. It's not as if they're flying under the radar necessarily, but I feel like they're being they're being told in a very like spoon fed, easy way that allows people to accept them. And I like to tease things out a bit more and make it a bit more complicated. And it's not as easy, uh, you know, as you as it might seem. How do you frame documentaries like heroin in a way that West Virginians are proud that you made it? Because, I mean, those are those are sensitive subjects, right? Nobody wants the lens to be on them, the light to be on them to show their flaws. And, and a lot of your films, I think, do go into showing the struggles of West Virginia and its people. Um, so how do you how do you go about telling those types of stories in a way that West Virginians don't give you a lot of backlash? Well, I mean, there may be some West Virginians that hate my films. They don't tell me. <laughs> I'm sure there's some people that don't want to see another film about opioids because they, you know, they are a small business owner and they feel that representation is really hurting whatever their interests are, which I totally get. But growing up in West Virginia taught me to be honest, right? And to look things square in the face and to not, and to be quite sober about things. You know, I, my experience of emotionally growing up in West Virginia was one in which you live with pain. It's side by side with you. And it's not something that you let define you. And it's also not something that you hide from. And so this new sort of narrative that I feel like has existed, which is we can only tell positive stories, no negative stories. So we can only show the beautiful sunsets over the New River Gorge is not helpful for anyone. I love the sunset over the New River Gorge as much as anyone, but we also have some issues we need to work on. And so I try to approach it in a sensitive way. I mean, I'm not exploiting people. I'm meeting them where they are. I'm showing them be both a sort of a hero within their own life and also what their challenges are. And it's about sticking around long enough so that you get to see that. You know, you don't get to see that if you only take two or three days to make a documentary, which is most of what national media does. They drop in for five days, they find out who they're going to interview and they spend 24 hours per person. And you just can't do that and tell a nuanced story that West Virginians aren't going to feel like they're just being vultured upon. So I think that there comes a bit of respect. Also, when I go into a story, I'm from West Virginia, so the trust there is stronger immediately because we can name people we know in common. We can name towns we know in common. We can name events throughout West Virginia's history that we have in common. There's just so much common ground that the trust is easier for me to build. So I think I pretty much know how West Virginians are going to react to the work because I'm, I am one. I am a West Virginian, and so I'm sensitive to both the stereotypes and our reality that we have to face. Appalachian Beekeeping Collective is a nonprofit organization that trains, supports, and provides bees and equipment at no cost to partner beekeepers. Focused in economically distressed Appalachian communities, they help their partners produce natural honey and income 
in the greenest possible way. Their bees gather pollen and nectar from nearby forests and fields and avoid exposure to pesticides. ABC Partners practice natural beekeeping using no synthetic chemicals or antibiotics. If you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram or at www.abchoney.org. Now let's get back to the podcast. Do you still view yourself as a journalist in those types of scenarios? Is that a is that a background that you think still provides a lot of value for you um, in order to help see see these through an accurate lens and, and make sure that you're telling uh, a true story? I see myself as a journalist in the fact-checking, honesty, truth-telling, soberness of things. And then I see myself as a documentarian, which is a different practice that has its own sort of fly-by-your-seat-of-your-pants ethics, I guess you would say, when I will take a meal, have a meal with someone, you know, something journalists don't do. I remember when I went to journalism school at WVU, it was like a big thing that you don't sit down and have a meal with people, you don't accept gifts, all those types of things. And sometimes that's part of trust building. Sometimes the point of the day is not necessarily getting the shot that you had in mind, but actually sitting down and having lunch with someone and hearing about their life off camera. That's that trust that you build in those moments that I think journalists do, don't do because they want to keep their quote unquote objectivity actually hurts the trust building and intimacy you can build with a person because ultimately i mean documentary filmmaking is is relationships so if you don't have those relationships built you have nothing and those relationships don't end when you stop filming those have to be kept up and i still talk to nearly everybody i've filmed with over the years not every day but on a regular basis i talk to them yearly and the case of the women and heroin we spent a lot of time together after the film came out as well doing screenings and advocacy work so that's not something you just drop in and drop out of. And so I'm a journalist in the respects that I'm truth telling and fact checking and and holding power accountable and all those things. But I'm a documentarian in that I get close to people. And that often means it's more heartbreaking when things don't work out. And that often means it's hard to not want to step in and intervene and help when you see someone struggling. So yeah, it's a, it's a sort of tough line to toe. So I want to I want to talk about heroin a little bit more, and you've already mentioned it uh, several times. Uh, for those who have seen it, or you know at least are aware of it, they they might know that it's a double entendre, right? That you intentionally have the e in parentheses there, and, and I guess going into heroin when you were first developing kind of your outline for that, did you realize that you were going to be focusing on these strong, powerful, impactful women who were having an impact on that community? Or did that develop as you were on the ground there? Yeah, that developed once we were there. I often start projects with interviews because it's just a way for me to get to know people. And those interviews don't often even appear in my films, but it's just sort of that first um, knowledge base that I like to build. And so I was interviewing pretty much everybody that was on the mayor's in Huntington, uh, the mayor's drug control policy board. And I was interviewing a former police officer and he's, he asked me at the end of the interview if I had met Jan Rader. And I said, no, I don't know Jan Rader. And he called her up. He said, come up here. We're, you know, and she rolled up in her big red fire truck. And I was like, this woman's awesome. And she sat down and her interview was just so not about the facts and figures of the opioid epidemic. It was about her experiences. And she's so 
warm and open and real and not sugarcoating anything, but yet not being disrespectful. She just had this very incredible honesty to her and was vulnerable from the first minute we met her, uh, was willing to be vulnerable. And I honestly don't think we talked to anybody else on the drug control policy board after that. We we were like, we got to hang out with Jan. We got to get as close to Jan as possible. So we kind of remade our whole schedule and spent the whole week then trying to be as close to Jan as possible. And what I mean by close is just in physical space because every place she went, she didn't introduce us to someone else that was doing incredible work around the city. And so she became the conduit. I called her, I jokingly called her my fixer throughout the whole film because she would introduce us to everyone that was, there were so many people in Huntington doing so much and getting no credit for it. And it was actually pretty hard to make a film just about three people because Huntington has really got an incredible community of people all working towards this in all these different areas. But no, it wasn't intentionally supposed to be about women at, at all. That was not at all the intention. But what was cool about it was these three women really help the same people on different levels of society. And so you have, you know, Jan responding to sort of the immediate crisis, you know, at that overdose moment, which is critical. That's life or death. And then you have Nisha actually helping them when they're not in critical moments, think about recovery. And then they often get arrested and Nisha is writing them letters in prison or jail. And then if they're lucky and they don't have a violent criminal record and they have like felonies from prostitution or other crimes like that, they might get into the drug court judge or drug court, which is judges world where she helps to educate them around health and what their rights are and all that. So they they work with the same people at different stages of their life. And I just thought that was a pretty incredible way to look at how people who just get up every day can have such a big difference and, and they can be overlooked. There's so many, there's these three women exist in all gender, shapes, sizes, colors, and forms all over America that are doing this work every day for no thanks and no attention and no documentaries are being made about them. So they kind of represent those Americans that really believe in change and believe that they are going to be a part of they can be a part of it. But anyway, we filmed for a couple of weeks and then we just had to put it down because we Jacob's Ladder, which is the other film we were making at the same time, was starting to open. The rehab was starting to open in Aurora, West Virginia. And if you know West Virginia, Huntington and Aurora are nowhere close to each other. It's Preston County and Cabell County. So it's a long trip in between the two. And we're like, we didn't have any money for either of them. So we said, we're going to have to put the Huntington one down and follow the recovery one, recovery boys one while the rehab's actually opening. So it's time sensitive. And uh, I think we filmed maybe maybe 10 days, 10 or 12 days with women in Huntington before we started recovery boys in the spring of 2016. And then in October of 2016, I found out about a grant that was for specifically for a short film that would feature women making change. And here's these women sitting on my hard drive while making this other film. And we applied for the grant with the materials that we had. And that's how heroin came to be. Otherwise, it would be sitting on the hard drive. So it was kind of a crazy decision we had to make logistically to be able to make both. So yeah, it was not intended to just be women. There could be plenty of men in that film as well, because there's just so many great people in Huntington. I just, I think in heroin, I couldn't believe some of the truly candid moments that came out of it. I, I actually, I watched it twice in one day 
uh, just just last weekend. I hadn't seen it before. I, I had heard of it, but I, I hadn't actually seen it before. And I and I sat down first thing in the morning, watched it myself, and just was blown away. And and so my wife and I watched it later that afternoon. And both times, um, I can tell you the specific moment where I, I teared up. I, I couldn't help it. I, I teared up myself. And it was when the gentleman and Jan had the moment down by the river where he realized that he wasn't going to be part of the overdose statistic that year. Yeah, Mickey. Yeah. And, and that was that was just such a an unbelievable story, you know, the relationship that he and Jan developed, but just the ability for you and your team to be there and, and catch a moment like that is uh, really telling about how how much those people trust you and allow you to to be there and be a part of what's actually happening. Yeah, those are the moments that we live for as documentary filmmakers, where it's like it's all non-scripted and none of it's scripted. But for the most part, when you're filming things, I mean, I hate to say it, but most of documentary filmmaking is like watching paint dry, right? Like you're seeing the best of the best in the actual finished film, because we all know our lives are just mostly made up of mundane moments. Um, and so the film version of everyone's life is obviously the highlight reel. And so when when things like that happen, when someone has a revelation, it's so rare and it's so awesome and beautiful to actually be there. And I, I remember feeling the same We. We were shooting on two cameras that day just to make sure we had enough coverage. And I remember that happening and remember looking at Curran, making sure he was on Jan's face because I was on Mickey's face. And I've wanted both of their reactions because I just it was just such a what a moment. You know, this is someone that Jan saved. She pulled out of a bathtub nearly dead and has has brought to life. And, you know, this was the first year he wasn't part of those overdose numbers. And he came to that realization. It was. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm glad that sticks out. Once the film's finished, because as someone making it, it was powerful in the moment as well. Those types of moments where you're walking along the riverbank, you know, obviously that's something that was, I don't want to say scripted, but that's an event that was kind of planned and organized, right? Mm -hmm. are, are those events that typically are presented to you where Jan is like, hey, we're going to go walk and visit some of the tent city down on the river. Why don't you come join us? Or is that something that you're proposing and being like, hey, can we go with you. We know that you're going to go walk along the river. Yeah. Most of the time it's me finding out what they're doing already and then just trying to be there right place at the right time and make sure that everyone's cool with me being there. There's not a moment in which we are orchestrating things happening that wouldn't already naturally happen. We just have to make sure we're asking, hey, what's going to happen so we can be there. There is a scene in Recovery Boys, though, that wouldn't have happened without me suggesting something. And it was because we had been filming in Aurora at this rehab since February. And the um, rehab was brand new. And we had basically all of our footage was just inside these four walls because the growing season, they really hadn't started. They just had started planting things on the farm. So we really had like no outdoor footage. And it just felt we could look at our footage and just feel like this doesn't feel like West Virginia. This could be anywhere. It's like just these four walls. And so we were getting a little antsy. And I was at the time living near Grafton, West Virginia, and saw the night before that everyone had put out their lawn chairs the night before to save their place for the Memorial Day for parade. And I was like, oh, a parade would be really awesome to film. And the, the the rehab is really close to, not really close, but close to Grafton. And they would take field trips often where they go to the river to swim and fish and all this stuff. And they were planning on going somewhere 
that Memorial Day. And I just mentioned to the guy running the rehab that day that that Grafton had a Memorial Day parade. And he's like, oh, well, we could add that onto our list of what we're going to do today. And so that scene actually became a pretty important part of the film and the first half of the film, because it's the first time you actually see the guys out in public, like they've been isolated away in rehab. And so, you know, there's a moment where Rush sees the ambulance go by and the first responders. And that's when the audience learns he's overdosed 14 times. You know, he says these these people have been on me 14 times. So it's those moments that provide context. So. I don't often, that's like one of the few examples that I can say that I've actually made a suggestion that worked out in that way. And I really only did it because I wanted to show West Virginia and the world they were in because it just felt so isolating to be into rehab, in the four walls of rehab. But generally, you know, we just like get everyone's schedule, find out what they're doing every week and just pull 16 hour days you know, they're long days that we're shooting and we have lots of extra batteries and we just are constantly rolling because you just never know what's going to happen. If you're looking for a uniquely curated charcuterie board filled with locally sourced foods, you must check out Grazeful. Located in Martinsburg, West Virginia, they take pride in purchasing only the finest ingredients for their creations and vow that no two boards are ever alike. With Grazeful, every step of curating your cheese board is purposely thought out and handcrafted from the heart. So go check out their website at www.grazefulwv.com to see everything they have to offer. Or follow them on Instagram at grazefulwv to see their latest creations. Now let's get back to the podcast. So we talked a little bit about where your ideas come from. Let's talk about the distribution. You know, you've obviously got a couple of films, Heroin and Recovery Boys, that are both on Netflix right now. How does that process work in terms of actually selling a product once once you've filmed it and made it and, and it's packaged, ready to go? Are you reaching out to those companies or are they identifying you and saying, hey, we knew you were working on a project like this. Can we purchase the rights to it? It's different with every project. Some projects you start and you have a distributor on the front of it and they're hiring you to do the work. Like an episode I recently made for a Netflix series that's coming out in April, they contacted me to direct the episode before we even had the people to follow. So that's one way. Another way is to sell things once they're finished, uh, which is more of like a license deal. And then another way is to sell things midway. And that would be more like a co-production. So they actually come on and you're expected to take their feedback because you're taking their money and um, they provide a sort of full service marketing, publicity, everything. So with Recovery Boys, actually, we had no funding to make that movie. We made it for nothing until Trump got elected. <laughs> and it was in November of 2016. We were pitching in New York at this thing called the Brick Dot Good Pitch. And everyone was just beside themselves about how Trump could win and all this talk about Trump country. And here we are pitching this film from West Virginia, which has nothing to do with Trump. But it became the film that people thought in that particular audience that would help people know about this place that had just elected this man that everybody sitting in that audience thought was so heinous, right? And so it was a moment where we were in the right place at the right time because literally nobody wanted to fund Recovery Boys <laughs> for November 2016 because it's an uncertain narrative. There's, I couldn't tell people how it was going to end. I had no clue. 
And nobody wants to sort of place their bets on a film that is going to have a really bad ending, a really dark ending. Everybody wants a happy ending. And so there was no way to sort of construe that. So anyways, Netflix came on after that. And then they worked with us the whole following year to finish the film. So yeah, it you either work out a licensing deal, which is what Heroin was. The Center for Investigative Reporting actually owns it. And then they sold it to Netflix once it was finished. Um, so that's more of like a license, but it's still a Netflix original because you can also like a lot of people will sell their films to Netflix through a sales agent, but they're not Netflix originals. And so they don't get the full benefits of all the marketing and publicity that Netflix puts towards their own things. So, yeah, it's in the, like when Frontline PBS commissions me to do work, they own it. So I'm I'm work for hire and they distribute it. So it just kind of depends. But most of my stuff is independent. I Most of the stuff I raise grants and then look for a distribution partner after it's finished so that I can maintain creative control up until the last moment. Because if you bring someone on at the front stage, they're going to have an impact on who it is you're featuring in the film and where it is you're going to be filming. And I generally like to maintain creative control until the till I don't, you know, till the final stage until I can't do, make it anymore for free. What kind of stake uh, do you put in the awards and the festivals and the, and the nominations that you personally and, and your films have received? Was that shocking to you the first time that you were nominated for an award? Or um, how does it feel now that you've got a number of them under your belt? Yeah, awards are great for what they allow you to do in the future. That's what I would say awards are for. The funny thing about awards is it's always shocking when you get one. But the dirty little secret no one likes to talk about is you applied for it, right? Like you believed in your project enough to think that it could win. You paid the fee so that you could win, right? So everyone acts like, oh, this is such a blah, but you you applied. Like, let's not, let's be real. And so it's a huge honor because it means now, you know, people will answer my call. Like if you have an Emmy Award and a Peabody Award and an Academy Award nomination, you ultimately include that in every email you send from that day forward when you're pitching your next project. So that's what it means to me in a particular moment, like going to the any of these awards. It's, it's interesting. It's not my world. I have no interest in it being my world. I see it more as a sociological, anthropological uh, study of human beings more than anything. Like being at the Oscars luncheon was like its own form of a human zoo. It was very interesting. But so it's not necessarily something I strive for for the moments, even though they're interesting. I strive for the ability to keep telling stories. And so awards ultimately allow that. Yeah, but it's a it's a strange world. It's pretty unfair, the amount of awards. Like once one film gets something, it's pretty much in on getting a bunch of other things. And so you have thousands of films that don't get anything, right, that are worthy of, the, of these awards. But you have this sort of stacking effect of awards, which for one of my films, for Heroin, that certainly was true. You know, won the Emmy, got nominated for an Academy Award. So I've benefited from that stacking effect on that one, but it's pretty uncommon. And so I just, I sort of see this, all those experiences as this will be the only time this happens. I just sort of expect that to be the only time that that will happen. And so just to enjoy it. And yeah, I mean, the most exciting thing about going to the Oscars was being able to take the women, like the three women from the film walked the red carpet, which is awesome. And my mom. And my husband's mom. And so 
that was what it was like really all about was being able to like have that experience with them. Who do you have as a mentor? Are there other filmmakers that you kind of look up to to say that you model what you do after? I have a hard time relating to other filmmakers. So few of them come from a similar world. I respect them and I respect their work, but we come at it for different reasons sometimes. And I find that really difficult. You know, it's been said that documentary filmmakers are either trust fund kids or have a wealthy husband or have some way to make their money. And so I I love my fellow filmmakers that make documentaries. I have plenty of people that don't fall in those categories. But I often feel like the only like working class kid, which feels I feel frustrated sometimes by like the lack of understanding, like for a group of people who claim to want empathy and understanding in the world, you get in a room with some documentary filmmakers and they're pretty damn judgmental. And I find that really difficult as someone who sees themselves more as a bridge builder and less about writing off individual or whole groups of people because of a vote or whatever it might be. And so it's been challenging to find mentors within the documentary community. My, my mentors are mostly writers and journalists and people that I think aren't afraid to get into the messiness of the world. I mean, John Temple was my one of my earliest mentors. He's my professor at WVU and, you know, still is a mentor to this day. But yeah, it's I, I don't mean to at all diminish the work of other filmmakers, but I can't say I see another person out there that I think applies the ethics in the same way that I think they should be applied. We all just sort of function. You can't expect people like documentary filmmakers aren't stamped out in a factory. We all have our biases and we all have our ways of seeing the world. And some people are in documentary to have very specific goals, whether that's impact or change. And I'm in it because I like people. <laughs> and that's true for some others. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a kind of a complicated. I'm not I, I obviously have had some success with the industry, but I'm not really part of the industry. Um, and I feel quite separate from it philosophically at times. And I know you're teaching some film at University of Tennessee these days. Does that background, the fact that you don't have a mentor, that you feel kind of isolated coming from this blue collar type background, does that factor into how you teach filmmaking now at University of Tennessee? Yeah, I am a professor that just expects people to work. I think that when you're raised in a family that's not made of artists and creative people, what you see modeled around you is hard work. So you get up every day and you move the ball forward, whether you're a welder or a miner or case of my mom, like working at a pawn shop, like that these are just things you get up and do every day. And it's the persistence of doing things that I bring to my work. And so that's what I try to instill in my students. It's not about talent. It's not about a creative idea always. It's sometimes about putting in the work and slogging through the days that you don't feel creative to actually find the days that you will. And so, but a lot of the reason, one of the reasons why I took the job at the University of Tennessee was because a lot of the students come from a similar background as I did. And so, you know, they're not coming from families super wealthy families or families that have a lot of artists in them. And so they're often breaking the mold the same way I did and often have to justify why they should break that mold. I mean, my dad, you know, it wasn't until the Oscars that my dad looked at me over breakfast and 
in a in an honest to God, like very sobering moment was like, I finally get what you do. And, it, you know, I'd been doing what I did for almost eight to 10 years before that. And it's just interesting um, when you're sort of breaking that family mold of doing something like this with no real certain outcome. You know, there are lots of people pursue filmmaking and you never hear their name. It's a pretty risky thing for your family. That's a risk averse working family. So I like the students because they don't have any expectations or pretensions about their work. And I encourage them to sort of just like be quite persistent and in their efforts, because that's ultimately what it's going to take. Has there been anybody that you maybe received feedback from or praise from that was totally unexpected, um, you know, especially for heroin when you were going around the awards gambit. Has anybody kind of out of the blue sought you out to say, hey, this this was really special. This is great work. You're doing great things. Who, who's been the biggest surprise that you've received feedback from? I think the moment that I and Jan Rader had with Meryl Streep was pretty <laughs> interesting. Well, I, I met Meryl Streep very briefly at the Oscars luncheon and I introduced myself and told her who I was and and she knew the film and she actually referenced a scene in the film which was pretty incredible and she just was told me to tell the women give them my best like she just really admired the women well then like three days later at the governor's ball which is the thing that follows the Oscars Jan is you know she doesn't know a stranger and she wore her fire chief jacket, like the formal one, not the not the one to fight fires, but like the formal jacket. I forget what it's called over her dress. And um, Jan Raider and typical Jan Raider style sees Meryl Streep across the room and yells over Meryl. And Meryl Streep just turns around slowly in typical Meryl Streep style and just comes directly at Jan. She knew exactly who she was. And she said... I voted for you and to gave her her best and like talked to her and like gave her a kiss on the cheek and left. And so like this moment, Jan replayed over and over. And I would say that was the most shocking because she's pretty much probably the most famous person I've ever met. And she had actually seen the film, which was shocking. But I'm also just surprised at how many people have seen the film when you get on an airplane and, you know, you've, you're sitting beside someone that can't help themselves. But to ask, what do you do? Most of the time, if you say what you do. They're not going to have a clue. They've never seen any of your work. But with the with heroin, I swear, it's like I can't get on a plane. Someone hasn't seen it or I can't go to any part of Appalachia where someone hasn't seen. It. I mean, that film just traveled so well, which is so cool because I don't know that it'll be true for anything else I make from this day forward. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for part one of our interview with Elaine McMillian Sheldon. We hope you're enjoying the conversation so far and will come back and join us for part two. Until then, here's a short snip from the rest of our conversation with Elaine. See you next time. There's a point in every film. I'm almost finished with the film, but it's been a real grueling process to finish it where I look to Curran, my partner, and say, I'm not doing any more. No more Appalachia stories. I'm done. Like, I just have had it. You know, this is just, I'm frustrated. There's nothing more I can say. And I always said, like, when I hit the bottom of the well of storytelling in the region, like, I'll just find something else. But that's really daunting because I don't care about anything else the way I care about that place. And that's really hard because I can go and tell stories about anything. Like, in, in my industry, 
I'm doing something really weird. I'm turning down interest to make stories about celebrities and things that people know about because I want to tell stories about the coal industry, right? Like I'm I'm like going against the grain because I want to feel like I'm saying something that matters. Thank you for joining us on Creeks to Peaks, The Understory, the podcast that highlights West Virginians both near and far. If you enjoyed the podcast, want to hear other West Virginia success stories, or would like to donate to other Flag Spruce Initiative projects, please visit www.flagspruce.org. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram. We'd love to hear any recommendations you have on other people that you might consider part of West Virginia's understory. Thanks, and have a good one.